Welcome to the Film File brought to you by our sponsor, The Devil Tea T-Shirt. So if you want a stylish, uniquely designed T-Shirt that will make you stand out from the crowd and release your inner devil, then www.devilt-shirt.com and you can grab one. And if you listen to the end of this particular show, we'll give you an exclusive 10% discount code on your first order. Andy, are you now, as we speak, modeling? your inner devil devil t-shirt not yet i'm waiting for the uk postal service to actually deliver it it has been dispatched i have ordered myself the nice navy blue classic look and i can't wait once i've got it i will be doing my latest video for the youtube channel so people will be able to see exactly how beautiful it looks i've gone for the black because that's the kind of soul that i have uh, I'm going with the vintage look because again that's very me i am very vintage but that's my devil tea t-shirt and we're proud to say they are our sponsor. Cue the music. So, welcome to The Film File, episode 35. 35. Wow. Into our second season. We didn't have the cliffhanger of season one. Maybe when we get to season three, I don't know, we'd have the cliffhanger. It was called 2020. <laughs> uh, in this show... We'll be bringing you all the latest news. We'll be giving you a deep dive into the usual suspects. Andy will be telling me what he thinks of Black Swan, the classic film that for some reason he's missed. Mr. Andy Meakin, how are we doing? Well, I'm truly settled into a work life now. Oh, that's good. Uh, I'm really looking forward to my week off next week. <laughs> it sounds bad. I've just had five months off and already I want a week off work. <laughs> I've not gone back yet. And uh, so it's, it's I'm kind of grinding at the bit, really. Um, but... Things are starting to starting to look like they're happening on the horizon. But as far as the music scene and, and the film scene is going, it's uh, it's still pretty vague. Um, Andy's going to point out in a little while that we're recording this quite early for us. We usually do it sort of mid-afternoon. So I'm uncaffeinated at this stage, so anything could happen. <laughs> I'm already three cups in. He's so, three uh, cups in. I don't know how this is going to go with my mentality at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> so Andy, as ever... You are the man when it comes to the news. Been scouring the internet to bring you all the juicy, juicy tidbits to titillate you and excite you. Andy, what have you got? So all eyes have been on this weekend for Tenet. Yes, we're talking about Tenet again, but this has been the most critical weekend for them because it opened in the US. And Have they got a full opening it... in the US or was it, is it kind of limited at this stage? Well, it was. It, it's anyone who could show it. 35% of US cinemas are still closed, which also which includes those which are based in New York and LA, which are the two biggest hubs of cinema, which is probably the reason why, despite the studio targeting and predicting a 40 million opening for the US, they look to be finishing around about 20 to 23 million. Now you, you kind of, it sort of set itself up of being the saviour of cinema. Well, that's the mantle I don't think anybody would want to carry with them because it, yeah. while we we both agreed it's a good film it's just not a great film it's a confused film I, i'm just not certain yet that it was the correct film to, to to restart cinema going but it's got two battles it's not only having to battle against a pandemic it's it's battling against people feeling safe in a cinema which i have to be honest in this country we're doing very, very well, but the States is a different story, as we know. According to analysts, audience concerns over safety in the cinemas in the US appear to be the suggested reason 
for why it's not done that strongly. Uh, but some analysts are saying that it's still a fair result in this day and age to get 20 to 23 million. And Warner Brothers have already stated that they're in it for the long haul. They see it as a marathon, not a sprint. So they they expect, like, as people go to the cinema and go, well, actually, I feel comfortable in this, and this film was actually quite good, they'll go and tell their friends, who will then go, okay, I'll give it a shot, and they'll filter in. And it'll they, they see it as Tenet is going to be something that maintains a strong figures for six to seven weeks. Well, that's interesting, because there was a time when a, a film would be released and it would have to find its footing. It would it would take time to build box office and and that box office would generate over a series of weeks, sometimes even months. But now we live in an age where opening weekends are the make or break. If it doesn't hit anything on the opening weekend, then the film is either written off or considered a, a, a blockbuster. Yeah. So maybe we're back in a world where a film is allowed to perform and find an audience and and, and attract people in rather than have to worry about about making it in that in that first opening uh, three or four days. Yeah, it's worth noting that the film is doing really well internationally. It's um, hit 129 million after two weeks of op- well, a week and a half of opening, and in China alone, it opened to a 30 million week. And if the film can, reportedly, if the film can get past 500 million, it will be considered as being a success. Because it was a heck of a budget. Yeah, and, it, and it's heading that way. If it can sustain at least four weeks worth of decent business decent business internationally 500 million is nothing and it'll, it all i i reckon it could finish higher than that on the flip side over at disney mulan has opened as well now the reviews have been very good i've not seen the it reviews have been fantastic about it it's you know talking about like the the different approach that they took to it rather than just adapting the cartoon the looks the visuals the cast everything has been getting some praise well, as we know, with the because we discussed all this, how Disney were releasing it was that if somewhere had Disney Plus, they get the premium Disney on Disney Plus video on demand, where you have to pay. In the UK, it's about twenty pounds. Uh, it's thirty dollars in the US in order to basically rent it until it's free in December. And any countries that didn't have Disney Plus would get a cinematic release. Well, it's opened to a paltry five point nine million box office. 5.9 million for an international release is bad enough and then you combine it with the fact that according to reports it's been under underperforming on the video on demand as well it only hits the top trending algorithms on disney plus on sunday it took almost three days to get itself into the oh a lot of people are watching this section normally on the opening day of something new on um, disney plus it flies into the algorithm now it's a shame because, as I said, the reviews have been have been particularly good. I, I, you and I are slightly um, not at odds on this, but coming coming in from a, a different position. I think if you've got a family, then twenty quid is less than you would pay for a night out in the cinema. You know, uh, you, you're taking food, you're taking transportation, whether you, you, yeah. you're going to park. You know, you, you're talking about a family of four. There's thirty, forty quid there. So. It looks to me like a good deal, however. However, if you haven't got a family and you just either go to the cinema, normally go to the cinema on your own or watch films on your own, or you go with your partner, 20 quid is more expensive than what you would have paid. And you're not getting the experience. You're not getting the big screen. You're not getting the whole environment. And as, as we discussed last week, you know, 
it's the whole going to the cinema is a different feel. It's a special night out. It's you make something about it. And even if you've got a family, you take your kids along to treat them with that. With the reviews saying how sumptuous this film looks, it just seems a huge disappointment that you're not going to get a chance to sit and watch it on a 20-foot screen. So the other point of view of this is is all the reports that came out during the summer with, with Trolls doing very, very well, being released VOD, uh, Scoob, um, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the story going round is, well, is that it for cinemas? But but clearly not, because if uh, people would go and see this, if this had, this yep. had been released internationally uh, and, and gone straight to a big screen. Yeah, general buzz online amongst all film following communities, etc., is people saying, I'd have loved to have seen this on the big screen. As it happens, seems though I can't, I'm going to wait until December and watch it for free. And that shouldn't be the opinion. You know, you should, if you're excited about film, want to see it. But the thing that's putting people off is the way that it's being forced into a paid premium video on demand without giving the choice. I still say that they should have done and tested the market with this, release it at the cinemas at the same time as video on demand. Yeah. Because this whole 12 weeks window we've discussed multiple times, it, it's a thing of the past. It's got to change. People will still go to the cinema for stuff that they can see at home. And we've demonstrated that ourselves at work over the past few weeks because Trolls 2 has been doing pretty good for us. And we've also got an exclusivity on Netflix, a film that goes to Netflix next month after we collided. And that's been doing great business for us. So people will go to the cinema for that experience. Disney should, in my opinion, have given people the choice. And I think they would have definitely, definitely hit some great figures. Okay, so moving on, some disappointing news about the Batman. Yeah, um, our bats is uh, now suffering from COVID. Yeah, so they started filming. And it was it was big news because it was this kickstarting. It's been shut down since March. <laughs> yeah, it's been shut down. It was kickstarting uh, British film production, and then unfortunately, um, Robert Pattinson reportedly contracted uh, COVID nineteen during tests. But they've not shut down filming entirely, have they? Uh, well, there's mixed reports on this because it was it was said that they've not shut down filming. They're going to film stuff like scenes which he wasn't in. But then they've turned around the next day and gone, no, that was just speculation none of that's actually happened oh, okay so it's still un unclear as to whether or not they are continuing some production i suspect that they are doing some minor things but you you know as well as i do that it's not just a case of they can just go oh well we can't do those scenes so we'll just do this one because everything's scheduled for different locations different sets and everything and they can't just change it the next day at the drop of a hat any report saying oh but they're continuing filming that's not how it all works. You've also got the additional compounded aspect that we've already discussed of people are kept in their bubbles for different aspects of the filming. So would they be breaking people out of their bubbles in order to forcibly shoot something that they were planning to shoot four weeks away? Well, you've got to remember that there's more than one unit will be filming as well. So you might still yeah. be getting your stunt teams working, your effects team working. Yeah, that, that'll be the only part of production that's still going. The ones that have nothing to do with our pats in the main roles uh, but that means that robert patterson has joined rock the dwayne johnson who's also been revealed as suffering from covid19 yeah that's uh wish them both well um wish that wish them a healthy recovery and look forward to seeing them back on the big screen again but it just shows that you know you've got all the deniers out there who are like oh it's all a conspiracy and not none of it's real and only the only people who like uh who, who are really unhealthy uh getting it 
Okay, try telling Rock the Dwayne Johnson that he's unhealthy. Yeah, even he can't kick his ass. A quick flip back to the whole releasing of films. And Alberto Barbara, the head of the Venice Film Festival, has stated that he thinks that distributors need to bite the bullet and release films or risk losing everything. And he's got a great quote from him here. I understand the concerns of producers that it is a risk to release their film when not all theatres are open. But I see another risk when we are waiting one more year to release a film because we need good films when the theatres are open again. Why should somebody be convinced to return to old habits after one and a half years and give up the commodity of watching films at home for a small amount of money? Most distributors are waiting for the good moment to release their films, but that is a risk which could damage the entire distribution system and especially the theatres. Which, yeah, I know we've done the point of last week of the head of IMAX saying, if you've got a kitchen at home, you'll still go out. But I think this is a valid point that if someone's forced into breaking a habit for one and a half years, it's unlikely that they'll jump back on that horse. Yeah, I know. I agree. I, I, I've seen and, and it's been demonstrated to me how safe you can make cinemas at this point and, uh, uh, and just a little bit of common sense and some forethought going into it then. And this includes uh, distributors keeping films in cinemas longer so so people can yeah. go with, with uh, reduced cinema size. That that's the that's the way forward. I, I do think people will get into a habit. I've started getting into a habit and found it very hard to think about leaving the house. Sometimes yep. I know that sounds it, it sounds a little bit dramatic, but I, I have found that. So yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, but you know, the the flip side again is people have got to feel safe to want to go into a cinema, uh, as has been demonstrated in the safe. But in principle, totally agree with him. So we have some news, some Marvel news, and I'm not going to allow you to say that word because my, uh, <laughs> uh, otherwise I've got to put a warning on, on the front of the program saying this, this episode contains some, some spurious language. But Sony so, planning... Are you talking about the Sony Pictures Universe of Marvel? We are talking character. about Sony's planning of the... Uh, uh, first, <laughs> Sony are planning a Marvel Silk live-action series. For those who don't know who Silk is, first and foremost, explain what's going on, what Sony are up to, and, and some of the other characters that they're bringing in. So Silk was introduced in the comics back in 2014, so quite a relatively new one, brought in during their whole introduction of the whole Spider-Verse. They introduced or brought together quite a few variations on Spider-related characters during that time. And the character is a Korean stu student who was a classmate of Peter Parker called Cindy Moon, who was also bitten by a radioactive spider and has abilities to make her move fast. She can shoot webs from her fingertips and she can detect danger. She's not a great character, in my opinion, but it's it was a time when Marvel were basically doing alternate variations of each of their characters on all of their lines, and it gives a different kind of approach. I, I personally feel that a Ghost Spider, i.e. Um, Spider-Gwen, Spider -Gwen, is a much more interesting character than Cindy Moon, but... Taking this, they're taking this one to TV. Yeah, maybe that's the best best option. Now, the character of Cindy Moon is actually in oh, um, the recent Spider-Man films. I thought so. She is. She is one of Peter's classmates. Whether it's going to be the same actress that they're going to use to do the TV series and tie it all together is still unknown. They might just go down a whole recasting route. But I think if they're going to do this approach. They should utilise what resources are already there. And I think it would be a good little... It'll be a tie-in to the Spider-Man films, which means it'll be a tie-in to the MCU, which means that it'll be a definite success. This is some news which caught my eye. And, and I messaged you when I read it. 
Francis Ford Coppola is releasing a new edit of The Godfather Part 3. He is indeed. To give it, you know, have you seen what the full title is? Yeah, it's very it? long-winded, isn't it? Mario Puzo's The Godfather, Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. Which kind of gives it away. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, there's a lot to be said about this. We'd known that there were, he was going back and restoring the film and doing like a good like 4K restoration. But this new news, it's not just a restoration. It's a whole new cut of the film, which was generally considered a disappointing addition to yeah. the story. Now, I don't think it's a terrible film. It's just, it's just not, it doesn't really have serve a purpose. No, and, and in connection to two of the greatest films ever made, it, it, is, it, is, it is very weak by comparison. As a standalone story, it's not bad. It's not, it's not the horror story that, that you think it is if you've not seen it. But it, it was considered a disappointment and, and considered a, because I don't think anything really could have lived up to, to The Godfather Part Two, which is just, just a stunning piece of work. But it's not the first restoration he's done in re-edit, is it? Because he did The Cotton Club as well. He did, yes. Which I've not seen. What he said with regards this new re-edit is it's an acknowledgement of Mario's and his preferred title and their original intentions for what became The Godfather Part Three. For this new version of the finale, they've created a new beginning and a new ending and rearranged some scenes, shots and music cues. With these changes and the restored footage and sound, it's a much more appropriate conclusion to The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. So it's it's going to be, feel like a completely different film by the sound of it. Well, I'm, I'm intrigued, but the, the weak point, unfortunately, was Sofia Coppola, who just hadn't got the acting chops for the role that she was in. I saw someone jokingly say that George Lucas was going to be involved in the restoration and they were going to replace Sophia Coppola with um, Jar Jar Binks and someone else replied, like, would you tell the difference? <laughs> <laughs> so um, unless unless they're really, really going to uh, minimise her her role in it, she she was the weak link for such an important character. Yeah. Um, so we'll wait and see. I'm very intrigued. From what I do know, though, it is getting... Um, a release in cinemas uh, in December. Limited cinema release before it goes onto home market. And we're not sure whether they're going to get a, a UK release, are we? It's, I know it definitely released in the states in December. Yeah. But I would, I would definitely, definitely go. I will definitely go yeah. and see it because I think it's worth catching up with and seeing, just to see if you can remold something and make it as, as worthy as it's, as, it's uh, as the previous film. Another legendary director looking back at his old properties and talking about the future of them, Ridley Scott, whilst promoting his HBO series Raised by Wolves, has brought up the subject of the Alien franchise again. Still, Scott still feels that he's got enough new tales to make out of it. And whilst Disney don't currently have any plans for the franchise, Scott has said that whatever comes next for the Xeno will be very different to what we've seen before and will largely ignore the last two films, Prometheus and Covenant. Probably for the best, especially with Covenant. Prometheus, yeah. I, I think, is, is, is a film that I have gone back to and watched a couple of times and enjoyed it more and more the other times. I, saw it. I was very disappointed when I first saw it, but enjoy, enjoyed it more. It's got some real clunky scenes in it, which... It's got some great ideas that lift it. Yeah. Covenant, on the other hand... Is irredeemable, in my humble opinion. So he's very very keen to go back and give it some more life. Um, as he said, it's in process. They went down a route to try to reinvent the wheel with Prometheus and Covenant. Whether or not they go directly back to that is doubtful because Prometheus woke it up very well. But you know, you're asking fundamental questions like, has the alien himself, the face or the chest burster, have they all run out of steam? Do you have to rethink the whole bloody thing? 
and simply use the word franchise. And also remember, these are horror movies. It should be a horror movie. It's not an exploration yeah. of, of the psyche. They are at the heart of it, a haunted house movie and uh, uh, in, in Aliens, uh, a full-out horror, uh, horror monster assault. Let's not forget that they are horror movies. Clever horror movies, slickly done, but that's what they are. They're monster flicks. Uh, Mike, give him all, all the Stephen King stuff. Flanagan <laughs> wants to get his hands on Dark Tower. Well, somebody should do after last time, really, shouldn't they? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it's had many attempts to crack the Dark Tower. And those who don't know what the Dark Tower is, it's basically King's magnum opus. It's a seven-book series that draws in themes and characters from pretty much all of his works and tells a tale set in a, a mid-world that connects all realities. And because that world is crumbling and falling apart and the beams that hold reality up are starting to break, it could destroy the, all the fabric of Stephen King's multiverse. He was doing the multiverse way before Sp Spider-Man did. Ron Howard and Brian Grazer were planning a film and TV project way back about a decade and a half ago that would have been a film followed by a season of 10 episodes, then a film, then a season of 10 episodes. That never happened. Then that big screen 2017 film came out which more served as a sequel to the book that you needed to know the books already before you could go in and enjoy it. So it was a mess. And then the Amazon TV series got the plug pulled on it early this year. Flanagan has stated on it that the Dark Tower is forever going to be the story that he wishes he could tell. It would be the Holy Grail. Talk about an adaptation challenge. So many very talented people have poured so much time and heart and soul and blood and sweat and tears trying to crack that. He wants this. He wants it. And I'm all for it because seeing what he's already done with King Properties, we've got a lot of love for Mike Flanagan. Yeah, he is the modern day Mike, uh, Mike Garrett, isn't he, to a degree? He's the, he's the person who feels connected to Stephen King. I don't know the Dark Tower series. I've read the adaptation that Marvel Comics did. I've not read any of the books. So I, I don't have a connect. It's not my kind of fantasy or, or, or even kind of horror. From what I know, though, it would be best served as a TV series, because it was an episodic book series, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, whilst a couple of the books could adapt well into film if they just tackled it, it would require a series to explore all the themes and all the aspects of it. And the biggest problem that they'll have if they do big screen adaption to try to stay faithful is because it uses so many characters and events from Stephen King's whole pantheon. It's all down to who's got the rights to which story for the big screen. Whereas on the small screen, they can skirt around that because it's separate rights that can get picked up. Just on, on a quick Stephen King aside, have you seen the teaser trailer for The Stand? I've not, no. Oh, it looks good. It looks good. Ooh. I'm really looking forward to that. I think we get it around December. It's going out on the CBS um, pay-per-view channel. And it, it's, it's a December now. release in the States. And let's hope we get it around the same time. Looking forward to not it. Not long at all. Mission Impossible 7 filming has begun in Norway. Chris McQuarrie has posted a photo of a bridge or ramp captioned day one. And there's been additional pictures of Tom Cruise rehearsing a fight with a stuntman on top of a vintage train because why not? Because that's Tom Cruise and that's Mission Impossible. And running towards a helicopter that's taking off, showing that the star certainly isn't handing anything over to body doubles just yet. Um, I hear that Jason Statham and Guy Ritchie are reteaming for a spy thriller. The Stave. The Stave and Guy Ritchie. Uh, teaming up for the spy thriller called Five Eyes, which will see Statham play an agent recruited to track down and stop the sale of a new weapon that threatens the world. This is the fifth time that they've worked together. 
uh, with Lockstock, Snatch, Revolver, and the upcoming Cash Truck being the other four films. And I, I think they're a great partnership. I think that Statham, Statham's enjoyable to watch on screen, but I think he's been at his best when he's been alongside Guy Ritchie. Those early films, I mean, I've got some love for Revolver. I'm that kind of weird person. I'm that one person <laughs> who likes Revolver. But I'm excited for this. I mean, it's an action spy thriller with Jason Statham, directed by Guy Ritchie. What's not to love? Joe Carnahan has also got an action thriller called Cop Shop that will see a small town police station become a battleground between a hitman and a smart rookie female cop and a double crossing con man. That sounds interesting. And Who's the cast? He's, he's secured two of the cast so far and they're still working on the rest. But the two male leads are going to be Frank Grillo and Gerard Butler. Wow. That's Gerard. I'll just put my name to anything, Butler. You can, you can almost smell the testosterone from here. Already, yeah. Filming's due to commence in October. Uh, Carnahan sometimes delivers something spectacular, sometimes delivers something just okay. But it's always diverting entertainment. I've never watched a Joe Carnahan film and thought, I hated that. I've always got some enjoyment from it. And this sounds like, well, it, it, it sounds like an Assault on Precinct 13 kind of setup. Yeah, which I'm in. You've got me on yeah. that. Keeping it in one, one small town, police station, that's your location, and that's where everything takes place. I'm fine with that. Filming due to commence in October. One film that we've spoken about a few times is P.T. Anderson's next film, which we're, we're both quite excited for. Me, because I love P.T. Anderson, and you, because it's Anderson going back to his 70s it is setting. The love I have for Boogie, Boogie Nights. It's now got a working title of Soggy Bottom. Okay. And as we know, the film will focus on a child actor in the San Fernando Valley who's the centre of a string of multiple storylines that all weave together in that Anderson way. We already knew that Bradley Cooper was supporting, and we also knew that singer-songwriter Alana Hain is co-starring in the film. He's now cast his lead star. Who is? Philip Seymour Hoffman's 17-year-old son. Ah, keeping it in the family. And, and it is a family for P.T. Anderson. Anyone who knows Anderson's films will know that Hoffman was present in pretty much all of them. He, he was one of his muses. He worked with him on so many films. And I think this casting really, like, it, it works well to cement it as part of the legacy of the Hoffman family. That's and it's going to be nice. interesting to see whether his son follows well and truly in his father's footsteps because it was a gr sad loss to the industry when Philip Seymour Hoffman passed oh, away. Oh, very much so. An amazingly talented actor. I mean, can you believe it was 2014? Uh, I, I can't actually because the, the way I think that the time is no longer linear and uh, seems to be happening at multiple multiple points across the same universe is, is, is throwing me out completely. Tenet's really got to you. Yeah, it? <laughs> I'm going backwards in time as we speak. We spoke about Robert Eggers' Northman, which was due to start filming. Uh, sadly, Bill Skarsgård has had to drop out of oh, it. Oh, that's disappointing. Uh, the 10th century Viking revenge thriller he would have seen him working alongside his brother Alexander and when he's done the announcements that he couldn't combine the shooting of this with the shooting of other projects scheduling conflicts which have been caused by the delays through Covid meant that he had to pick and choose and he was close to tears when he had to reveal that he wouldn't be working alongside his brother on this film that he was so excited for everyone else apparently is still involved Nicole Kidman, Anya Taylor-Joy Katie Dickey, Björk and William Dafoe but I think it's a shame to not see him on there. I think he's a, he's a great actor. He's a great presence in films. And I think he would have really, it would have been really nice to see him work alongside his brother in a Robert Egger film. Absolutely. I've got some Zack Snyder news. 
which isn't to do with Justice League. Is it not to do with Justice League? It's not to do with Justice League. I'll remain happy then. So Zack Snyder's zombie heist action movie, Army of the Dead, uh, hasn't got an official release date on Netflix yet, but Netflix are already planning to expand the world of the film with a prequel movie and an anime spin-off series that are reportedly already in the works. I've read something on this. Isn't it the same writer, one of the writers from Army of the Dead, uh, Army of the Dead who is penning the prequel and anime? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, written by Snyder's been involved, uh, Shea Hatton and Joby Harold. So the story is during a, a zombie outbreak in Las Vegas, a group of mercenaries are called in to rescue a girl while a gang are attempting by chance to rob the casino that they're all in. So it's a heist movie and a zombie movie and a mercenary movie all in one. Which, you know, um, uh, everything we said about Zack Snyder, he still has made one of the best zombie films ever. It's only his more recent years that have put me more and more off him. But I've, st- I've, I've said from day one when he was announcing that he was going back to do Army of the Dead that he's getting back to what he did so well. And I was excited for it. And I'm excited to see, you know, not only is he going to expand out a zombie universe, it's also exciting because it means that he's got less time to spend trying to get back into the DC universe. <laughs> so the anime series is Army of the Dead, uh, Las Vegas. And of course, there's a, there's a prequel film as well to Army of the Dead. And it's, I'm pretty excited for this. And I think uh, um, I'm looking forward to it hitting Netflix. On related news, uh, touching on the Justice League, which was uh, the subject of a huge campaign to get Zack Snyder back to re-edit his version back together. There's been all the news circulating about what went on on the set during the reshoots. Yeah, now there's been a, a very, very public spat with uh, Ray Fisher, who plays Cyborg, and uh, Jeff Johns, Joss Whedon, and others he's named as of having unacceptable behaviour on set. Um, we only have, from what we know, Ray Fisher's side of it, as other people have, haven't spoken, but Warner Brothers have investigated it or say they've investigated it, but apparently for Ray Fisher, that's not been quite enough. And it's, well, it's, it's all got very, very public in a very unfortunate way. Fisher wasn't happy with how Warners were investigating it because every avenue, according to him, every time that he took it to the next level, uh, they didn't take it seriously. And he had, then had to go above them and above them. So he said that it needs to be an independent third party who investigates, who are now investigating it, which has led to, Whilst this is going on, you've got the clamouring online from people who are like, why are Warner's not saying anything? Well, because it's under investigation. Yeah, and I just want to point out, you and I have have both been in professionally, had to, uh, have been involved with staff uh, and and investigations. Everything is kept very, very quiet and very private. And sometimes colleagues don't even know of what's going on. So I'd like to like to to put that into perspective. You do not release any information while you are going through an investigation. And whilst Fisher has been saying that he's got to talk to his legal team and everything's got to be cleared, I'm not convinced that he's actually clearing most of the stuff that he's posting or videoing out where he's throwing more and more accusations out. He's throwing names out. He's throwing circumstances. These are all part which should be classified information. And he's not coming across in a very professional way. And he said that he doesn't. He suspects that he's not got a career after this and he'll have to find another job. I think it's good that he's accepting that because the way that he's acting, no studio is going to want to touch him going forward. Yeah, even if he's right, even if, if he does feel um, 
he doesn't he, he doesn't feel as though he, his needs are being validated and and he wants to he wants to vindicate it for what's happened this is not the way to do it this is an, unfortunately a 21st century problem where people have a tendency to spread all their news and 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 growing unhappiness across social media because they think that that's how that's how it's done in a professional circumstances that's not how it's done yeah. even if he is correcting what he's saying i'm afraid i don't think he's making the right choices but no everything we're saying is purely speculative we weren't there we don't know i don't know anybody on the set but it will at some point everything will come to light and um we'll keep reporting on it and let's just round off with a quick look at what marvel are up to at this point in time we know that natalie portman has arrived in australia oh right um is she on holiday or uh, she's arrived there ready to begin shooting on thor love and thunder when that shooting schedule starts oh that's good so so things are picking up yeah marvel have been using the sydney studios that used to be owned by fox uh, they reopened them to s- complete shooting on shang chi over recent weeks and apparently they're scheduling everything to literally be that as soon as the final day of shooting on shang chi takes place everything's stripped down and the sets are then all built straight away for thor so that's why natalie portman's arrived now because as we've discussed before the quarantine restrictions where they're getting people into their bubbles in the same hotels ready to go into production make sure everything's clear so within the next three to four weeks, we should be seeing Shang-Chi come to an end of production and Thor get set up. They're not specific on the timelines because obviously anything can happen in this day and age, but it certainly looks like the studio aren't wasting any time and are setting each film ready to get off to a quick start. And it wouldn't surprise me if once Love and Thunder has been stripped down, the next film is placed into there straight away. They want to get that train running again and they want to play catch up which could mean that come 2022, we get five Marvel films in one year. Wow, that'd be, that'd be uh, uh, you know, one every two months, basically. Oh, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd be for it. We must be due then an Eternals and Shang-Chi uh, trailers at this point, at least teaser trailers. Yeah, there must be something on the way, especially at, um, Eternals, because that's still planned for February next year. Yeah. So I, I imagine sometime around November, we'll definitely see the first lots of trailers come out speaking of trailers uh one just to round off the news with um, a little talk about a trailer the june trailer is due to release in two days yeah now i thought this had this had been and gone and, and, and yesterday morning i got up uh, and started checking over the interweb to see uh see if it was there but but you're saying two days which we're recording this on monday the seventh so yeah so releasing on wednesday the ninth so uh, as we yep. hit the airwaves this will this should be out. Some cinema audiences have been lucky to catch a little teaser for the trailer, which was about one and a half minutes long and does little quick glances of characters and locations. And I'm one of those lucky people who's seen oh, it. Oh, wow. I didn't realise that, Andy. Tell us more. Yep. Is it a thing of beauty? And as a fan of Dune, I am in. I am completely in. It looks exactly how you would envision this director to bring a sci-fi epic to the screen. It looks amazing. The cast all look fantastic, but it's got like a little bit of dialogue. The, the, the trailer focuses on um, the Bene Gesuit test where he's got to re- like resist the pain of putting the hand in the box. And it's the dialogue from that which is getting played over it. And my heart was in my mouth and I just had, I, I, I was having palpitations. I can't wait to see the full trailer. 
but I'm already sold completely on this film. It looks like June should look. When are we getting a release for June? Because I, I was led to believe it's this year. Yep, it's still still holding that December the 17th release date, the pre-Christmas. We're still optimistic about it staying there, just like we're optimistic that Bond is going to stay in November now because they've released new tr- yeah, that new looks posters great as well. with the November date on it. June should be a Christmas release. It's all down to how Warners react to the performance of Tenet over this past weekend, and I guess we'll have more news on that next week. And that is what we like to call the news. So if you're a fan and you're enjoying this particular podcast, then please, please indeed, subscribe. Uh, Become a follower of The Film File. And if you are enjoying it and you think you've got friends who equally could be enjoying it, then pass us on. What we're looking for is to build up our, our listenership, which will enable us to bring in more sponsors and to do more and more exciting things. Because, boy, we've got a list of exciting things that makes you look like a set from on Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> Over the last couple of weeks, due to things like lockdown uh, and not being able to get into the cinema, Andy has been tasked with catching up with some of those classic films, which for reasons that we're still trying to understand, he's missed. And one of those, from the film I sent him last week, is 2010's American psychological horror film directed by Darren Aronofsky, Black Swan. Four stars, an instant classic. My daughter, the Swan Queen. Black Swan is outlandishly entertaining. Just want to be perfect. I want to see passion. Attack it. Natalie Portman delivers a dazzling tour de force that makes her an instant leading contender in every best actress race. What happened to my sweet girl? She's gone. Director Darren Aronofsky soars to new heights with Black Swan. It's a masterpiece. Black Swan. Okay, the film stars uh, Natalie Portman, uh, Vincent Cassell, uh, Mila Kunas, Barbara Hershey, and Winona Ryder, and the plot revolves around the production of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake Ballet by the New York City Ballet Company. The production requires a ballerina to play the innocent and fragile white swan, for which the committed dancer Nina, played by Portman, is the perfect fit. And also, in that role, she has to perform as the dark and sensual black swan which are qualities better embodied by her new rival, Lily, played by Kunis. Nina is overwhelmed by feelings of immense pressure when she finds herself competing for the part, causing her to lose her tenuous grip on reality and descend into madness. And it's one of those films, and it reminds me to some extent of Roman Pulaski's The the Tenant, where you don't know what's real and you don't know what's going off in the character's mind. Andy, ask you every week, but what did you think to Black Swan? I've got a fair bit of love for Aronofsky's films. I find myself quite easily engaged with the characters and the interesting way that he explores themes and explores mentalities within there. I mean, you know, The Wrestler, for example, is like possibly one of his best explorations of a psyche that he's done. And this is a great companion piece to The Wrestler. It's a flip side kind of approach. It's another look at a bit of entertainment and how it impacts on the people who are within that entertainment. You've already touched on like the, the it plays on the what's real, what's imagined kind of aspect, and it plays it beautifully, not just in the storytelling, but in the cinematography and the way it's all presented. Um, he, it's uh, Matthew Liberty, I believe is his longtime collaborator, the yes, cinematographer. Is, yeah. uh, he s- sometimes shoots it as though it's a docudrama. Yes, yeah, very handheld, isn't it? 
So you feel like you're behind the scenes at the productions of the ballet and the rehearsals, etc. But then sometimes it goes a bit more static and majestic and it serves to keep you unbalanced as an audience because you never know whether you're watching something which is real or something that's fake. Rarely, well, I want to go back and rewatch it. I've taken this long to get around to watching it and now I want to waste more time and miss out on other films by rewatching this because the cast were great. Even Mila Kunis, who I've never really got any love for, she's really well placed in this. It's hard to talk about it without spoiling aspects of it. It is. I mean, to, to, to point out, I mean, this is not a film that, that's solely about ballet. If, and if, if that's what you're thinking, if you've not seen this film, why do I want to go and see a film about Swan Lake? This is this is closer to a to a horror movie, yeah. To ex, to an extent, if anything, the ballet scenes seem clumsy and lack impact because they're not the important part of the story. The important part of the story is Natalie Portman's psyche as she gets thrust into the the central role in Swan Lake, and the character of the the central character, the the virginal girl who becomes a swan who is then seduced by darker elements to become the black swan. And that impacts on her psyche and changes her as a person as she prepares the journey to present. There's some great visual touches in there. The use of CGI is seamless to give little goosebumps appearing over her arms and shoulders, which like small feathers occasionally start to spring out from. You have to see the sequences to completely get them because there's moments that you're watching it and just go, what what did I just watch? What was did something happen there? Because you can't be sure whether you're seeing a change or whether that was already there. Uh, Natalie Portman, who was incredible as a dancer. I mean, she she from what from what you're seeing, you know, she she invests not only as a as a as a ballerina. She performs a lot a lot of moves, and and it's in, it's incredible. It's incredible physical performance. And she compared the film's tone, uh, and I mentioned the tenant but she compares it to Polanski's 68 film, Rosemary's Baby, yeah. um, about you know what's real and what's not real and what's psychological and, and what's going off in the characters' heads. Uh, I, I liked it at the time. It's not a film I've gone back and visited, and it's, it's been an, an awful long time on it, but it has. Uh, it, it wasn't the film that I thought I was seeing when, I, when it opened and, and enjoyed it more for that because, again, I thought it was perhaps a little bit of, uh, of, a, of a ballet thriller, but it's not. It's this... At the heart of it, this is a psychological horror film about yeah. about metamorphosing into into a character and metamorphosing into into something much darker. Um, it's got uh, it's got a very gritty feel. I thought it was shot on a DSLR camera, but I've read since that it was shot on Super sixteen, and and it was a lot of it is handheld. Uh, it reminded me a lot of early Polanski uh, uh, films like like The Tenant. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, but not a film I've gone back to. But a film that definitely, definitely, after I saw it, left a lasting impression. It's, it's a visual treat, uh, and one that keeps you guessing. It will, it does not go in a way that you think it's going to. It's going to unfold. You've mentioned Vincent, Vincent Cassell as part of the cast, and I've just got to give some love to Vincent Cassell because I've never been disappointed with anything he's done. He's one of those actors, isn't he? He's just he has that even when he's charm. been in an average film, he's just amazing in it. And in this, he's absolutely spot on perfect. So that's Black Swan. And for next week's film, I'm going to go, oh, I'm going to go somewhere into the deep, dark past when the world was black and white. I'm going to give you Brief Encounter because it's a film that has been um, 
it's been copied. It's a film that has been uh, 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 spoofed in many, many ways. But actually, it's one of those films that not many people nowadays have seen. So, Andy, your mission for next week is Brief Encounter. Excellent. The, the world really was in black and white back then. We really didn't was. invent colour. So all those black and white photos, that was real. <laughs> you know, somebody somewhere <laughs> will believe you. <laughs> hey, people believe in flat earth, so they'll believe anything. So we've not got anything to review this week. We're going to do another deep dive. I feel we've let people down here. I do. I'm, maybe the fact that we did two last week, we did New Mutants and Terror. Well, it's not just that. It's I think, I think in a way, we're kind of neglecting some of the things that are going to streaming that could have been covered. Is there anything that we've missed, for instance? There's uh, Kaufman's latest one. Oh, yeah, yeah, there is. Which went on to Netflix this weekend. And I only twigged on it last night, which was too late for us both to actually get round to watching it and research it. So I, I think that we need... We, let's let's have a look before we make a decision on what we're going to cover next week and see if there's anything due to land, either at the cinemas or on streaming. I'll take that. I'll buy that for a dollar. Even if we both watch I'm Thinking of Ending Things, because we yeah. both like Charlie Kaufman. We do. And this is supposed so, to be very, very good. So... If there's nothing else, let's both watch I'm Thinking of Ending Things before next week so we can talk about that. And that'll be our review. The week after that, you should have Bill and Ted's. Yes, because I'm, I'm interested to know what you think of it. I <laughs> <laughs> said. So, our deep dive for this week is uh, the 1995 neo-noir mystery thriller, The Usual Suspects. Ready? Critics are calling The Usual Suspects a stylish and intricate thriller. Anybody goes in there is not coming out alive. A deliciously complex crime story. There's nothing that can't be done. Spellbinding and demonically funny. You want to dance? Stephen Baldwin, Gabriel Byrne, Chaz Palminteri, Kevin Pollack, Pete Postlethwaite, Kevin Spacey, Benicio Del Toro. Now it's payback! The Usual Suspects. Rated R. Directed by Brian Singer, and, and don't let that put you off, because whatever's happened to Brian Singer in his personal life, at this point in his career, he was a master filmmaker, and for his second film, delivers something that is, is really worthwhile. Written by Christopher McQuarrie, who they two worked together again several times. Christopher McQuarrie now, of course, deeply embedded into most things that Tom Cruise is doing. Star Stephen Baldwin, Gabriel Byrne, Benicio Del Toro in his probably his first real big screen role. Kevin Pollack, Chas Palminteri, the great late Pete Postlewaite and Kevin Spacey. Another name that's sort of been, well, kind of extracted from film history and, and as, a, as a black mark against it. But an actor at this particular point in his career, he was playing on full cylinders. So the plot follows the interrogation of one Roger Verbalkin, a small-time uh, con man, who is one of the only two survivors of massacre and a fire on a boat docked in the port of Los Angeles. Through flashback and narration, Kint tells the interrogators a convoluted story of events that led him and his criminal companions to that boat and to a mysterious crime lord known only as Kaiser Solzheim. This is a film, when I first saw it, I instantly fell in love with and went to see it again as soon as it opened. I saw it as a, as a press show and, and when it opened, I went to see it again because... It's everything I like about a crime thriller. Uh, it's got the um, it's got the narrative, which in this case does it turn out to be true or false? It's got uh, twists and turns. It's gritty and yet it's cool. It's got some fabulous performances on. And, and this was kind of in in an era that was sort of post Quentin Tarantino. Lots and lots of films looked like Reservoir Dogs, but this film didn't. It yeah. was utterly utterly cool. 
as it aged well, have you had a chance to see it again, Andy? And, and do you think it's, it's a film that, that deserves all the credit that it was given at the time? And has it been dented by the allegations made at uh, Kevin uh, Spacey and Brian Singer? Yeah, I've had a chance to watch it again. And it's safe to say that this is a film that doesn't rely on the twist. I mean, everyone must know the twist by now. Yeah, it's spoiler. It's been out so long that you know the twist. But if you've, if you've never watched the film and you've been put off because you already know what the twist is, don't let it put you off because it doesn't depend on the twist. Unlike an M. Night Shyamalan film, which when you rewatch it, you go, oh, well, actually, now they know the twist. What's the point in watching this? Usual Suspects rewards repeat viewing. I'd put it alongside things like Fight Club in that when you rewatch it, knowing what the twist is, you spot much more things. And I got a lot out of rewatching this. I loved it. It's a five-star film still, as far as I'm concerned. It looks amazing. The cast are great, but seeing it, knowing where it's going, and you get to spot more details. You get to spot how Verbal, played magnificently by Spacey, takes in the details of the room around him, and how the questioning officer lifts his cup to drink from right in Verbal's eyeline, which is a very key component of that reveal. The twist never feels like it comes out of nowhere. And it's great going back and revisiting it. It's all, it's all there, isn't it? All, all the pieces, all the parts of the puzzle. Everything's. I mean, it's Macquarie. He gets, he weaves everything well. He knows where he's going. And he knows the path he's taking to get there. He doesn't just throw things out. I mean, some films throw out a twist just for like, ah, you didn't see that coming. It's like, well, there was nothing to lead up to that. So, of course, I didn't see it. Whereas he puts everything in there that you should have picked up on if you were observant. Yeah. I love clever writing like that. Does the casting and the director involve kind of taint it no i'm i'm a firm believer that you can separate art from the artist to some degree yeah and i i totally agree with you and what you also have to realize is that the, there's allegations but nothing's actually been brought against the parties in this film none of these have been proven just like with woody allen allegations have been made but nothing's actually been taken to court or been proven you have to look at their work as their work if you're going to dismiss everyone who's got a controversy and refuse to watch their, any films to do with anyone who's got a controversy, you pretty much can't watch any film. You need to, you need to strike all of Hitchcock's back catalogue out of history because he was notorious for being a bully on set. So let's not let all the recent revelations, whether they're true or false, damage a film that is a product of multiple people. It's not just these two people. It's not like it's a documentary about Kevin Spacey made by Brian Singer. It's a film written by Macquarie. It's a film starring a great lineup of cast and that was put together by a multitude of people. So let's appreciate the film as the film. For a filmmaker's second film, his first being public access back in 1993, this is so assured direction. This is sort of direction you would have got from someone who was further into the game, a, a Brandy Palmer or a, or a Coppola. And it, it does have that sort of Coppola feel to it. And, and yeah. you know, there are elements that reminded me of, uh, um, of of some of the De Palmer work, things like um, like Blowout. Singer himself described the film as uh, double indemnity meets Rashomon, and that's never been so true. But it is such a sure direction. I mean, he was only a young guy uh, at this particular point with, uh, and, and this is genius filmmaking. Uh, it, it's it's self-assured. It's, there's a confidence in it that that you wouldn't get from a from a, a second-time filmmaker. The way that he controls a big cast, an ensemble cast, 
the way that he, he holds a shot, the way that he, he holds the plotting. Yeah, clearly that's all down to an excellent script by Christopher McQuarrie. And again, this was his, his really his first major film. It's just so assured. At, 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 at points in his life, Singer has been an absolutely brilliant director. He, his, his latter work and, and the controversy surrounding him have, have, have tinged everything that he does. And he, and he has got lazy. And, and, and apparently a lot of the stories that you hear, he got lazy on set. But uh, After Pupil, his, his follow-up film to this, I think is a fantastic uh, Stephen King adaptation and, and very, very good. I think the first and second X-Men movies are, are excellent. The second X-Men movie in particular, again, playing with a big cast. Um, the work he did on Valkyrie is, is again, an, an underrated film that's, that is confidently, confident directed and teamed him up with McQuarrie again. This is, this is so much going to it. The, the subterfuge... The interactions with the characters, the dialogue, the amazing set piece, which which is kind of what they built the film around, which is this, these bunch of criminals meeting another police lineup, which I, from what I, I I hear came before the film even got made. Yeah. Everything about this works so so well. It's it's classy, it's clever, it's never too clever for its own good. It all makes complete sense when you watch it. Uh, and it's so confident, in, confident in the script, confident in, in direction, confident in all the performances. No one in it is, is wasted at any point. Everybody brings an A-game to it. Um, the comparisons to it being a Tarantino-esque film go out the window as soon as you, as soon as you see it. There's some interesting notes from on set of things that made it into the film, which weren't actually scripted. So Del Toro's accent was del toro's own idea apparently he decided to do the performance in that way because his character was set to die so it's like what difference does it make what i do if i'm just going to die anyway so he has this weird accent that the rest of the cast were told improvise around him talking in that accent which meant that there's moments when some of the cast stephen bolden at one point forgot his line and stumbles over his words because he, he, he was completely taken aback by Del Toro talking to him. You've got other characters turning around and like just asking him to repeat something because they don't understand it, which is seen in the lineup scene when he does the um, whole cocksucker thing. And it's like, now in English? And then he says it again, more angry because he was like, what? You don't, don't, don't. In the lineup scene as well, the breaking down laughing and the joking that's going on was completely unscripted and frustrated singer at the time of shooting. And it was all because, again, Del Toro kept making everyone laugh by farting constantly. That ended up getting into the film because when it came to the editing room, Singer looked at it and went, oh, I know it was winding me up on the day, but that actually works a lot better. Yeah, yeah, a great, again, a confident choice to go, let your actors do the work. And then when, yep. you, when it does work, don't be afraid to put it into the movie. There's uh, the cigarette getting flicked at Baldwin's McManus by Redfoot was supposed to hit his chest, but it hit his face instead. So the reaction of like, ah, oh, damn, and him like falling away was perfectly natural that made it in there's so much that comes from mistakes or jokes on set that got into the film and i think it helps it work because it makes it feel more real it, it does and, and look at it again it's it's everything about it is unexpected and, it, and it's done with a, just a marvelous elegance and, and, I, and i keep using this word confidence because to tell this sort of story where you are pulling the rug away from the characters and the audience you need to you need to have a have a script which is so secure that it never wrong foots you and leaves the audience scratching their head. It's kind of yeah. every every moment is like, 
oh, I, I, I got it. I get it now. Uh, it just works so well. It's expertly shot. It's expertly edited. It, it really is a simple plot, but it's just got yeah. so many layers of twists and turns on it and, and deceit. And it's, it's never even that violent, to be honest. It's, it's not one of those which, uh, those sort of films in that period that were, were Tarantino ripoffs. It, it, it is its own thing, and, and because of that, it works so well. McQuarrie won uh, the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, and Spacey yeah. won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in the 68th Academy Awards. Um, this is a film that, that still resonates today. It's, it's beyond a cult classic. It is a, just a, a great classic movie. Singer had all the cast believing that they were Kaiser Soze in order to keep the twist a secret. There's a famous story about how once they did the like test screening with the cast and crew, the Gabriel Byrne <laughs> took Singer outside and had a right go at him because he thought he was going to be the big reveal. Because he got various members of the cast to dress up as Kaiser Soze at some points for some shots, just to keep everyone off guard, even though it was always planned that Kevin Spacey would be playing the role. There's something that I, I spotted on this recently, what the because I literally watched it two days ago. One thing that I'd never spotted, there's the zooming in on the ropes at the dock. Yeah, that always threw me when I when I saw that. That you're, you're led to assume that Verbal's hiding there because you see him running towards them and he runs behind some tyres. And so you're led to believe that that's where he saw all the events that were taking place. Yeah. But there's no one behind the ropes. I always put it down as a, as a visual metaphor. Rewatching it, I was looking for eyes, I was looking for anything, and it's like, he's not there. And it's space he was deliberately told to run and hide behind the tyres because he's not really there. See, I saw it as a, a visual metaphor for what the film was about, this sort of tangled web, as, as literally as that. But that's what's so clever about it. That's why it's, it, it it's works. It's such a smart film. On, on, on numerous viewings, once you know what the ending is, it doesn't take it away, as you said earlier. You, you can it see, opens up a whole new way of watching You can it. watch it again in a different light and, and see the layers and then go, you know what? This all works. This all works because it's a, it's a narration and it's a narration which is leading us down the garden path. A fantastic film, a classic of its type. For me, one of the best heist films ever made, yeah. Usual Suspects. This episode of uh, The Film File is brought to you by The Devil T-Shirt Company. They're our sponsor this week, and they've given an exclusive discount for all our fans. Yes, that means you. Head over to www.thedevilt-shirt.com and use discount code FILMFILE2020 for 10% off your first order. Hurry, as this offer is subject to availability, so get it while you can and release your inner devil. Andy, at this point in the program, as we start to round things up, we have a neat thing. Something we've watched, something we've enjoyed, something we've played, something that's just thought, you know, that's really kind of neat. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? So my neat thing this week. Now, we know that the boys have started up on Amazon again. Mm. And the first three episodes dropped. And wow, what a return. But I'm not going to talk about the Amazon show. Oh. I'm going to talk about the comic book. Because my favourite promotion place of all times, Humble Bundle, is doing a great tie-in bundle that is still running for the next few weeks of the boys' graphic novels in digital form. For a total of £11.38, you can get volumes 1 to 12 of The Boys, which pretty much tells you everything that you need to know about these characters and gives you the full storyline. In addition, it's also got various volumes of Project Superpowers, Black Terror, Meet the Bad Guys, and Owl. So it's not just a bargain of getting like a 
you know, each graphic novel of the boys for less than a pound each, you're getting a wealth of other materials in there that you can throw yourself into. Project Superpowers from Jim Kruger and Alex Ross is a marvellous dynamite comic series, well worth checking out. But the boys as a comic, oof, if you love the TV series, you are going to love everything in the graphic novels. I've never read any of the, uh, uh, the comics. I nearly picked up the first uh, the first volume the other day, actually. Uh, I noticed it was it was running cheap on Amazon on uh, Comicsology. If you want to give it a trial, you can just opt in for the seventy five pence to unlock the boy the boys volume one, Black Terror volume one, boys volume two, Project Superpowers volume one, and Project Superpowers Xmas Carol. If you like that, you can then up what you put in to buy the rest. Cool. Uh, well, my neat thing for this week is is really it's our neat thing is that we are now on Instagram, so yeah, we are promoting. The show clearly but you're also going to get to see what andy and i look like in our devil t-shirts we're going to be putting up some interesting images we'd like you to take part in that and send us some images um just film files we're going to have some fun with it uh, we're looking forward to, to really sort of generating the whole film final um uh, franchise really uh, and building it up so my neat thing a small one that it is is the film final instagram page where you can um get to know more about the people behind the mask. You might be asking us to put masks on once you've seen, <laughs> yeah, once you've seen this, but... especially if you're <laughs> early, um, in the day. Um, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with uh, more news, more gossip, and uh, hopefully in a world that still exists. But for now, I believe in God. The only thing that scares me is kind of stuff. Andy will be looking at. Um, Andy will be looking at Black his. his <laughs> it's still too early. <laughs> And they'll be looking at Black Swan as his uh, missed video. And they'll be looking at Black Swan, his video. No, he's not video. <laughs> Shit, we started. I actually tweeted out just before we started. We don't normally record this early in the morning. I don't, I don't know how this is going to go. <laughs> that works. <laughs>